Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we get root access to the people who've shaped the world of cybersecurity today and find out about their journey so far and the events that have shaped their careers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Ryan K. Louie, a board-certified psychiatrist with the Washington Permente Medical Group, who, alongside providing treatment and care for adult patients with psychiatric illnesses, also has a research interest focusing on mental health impacts of cybersecurity and the psychiatry of entrepreneurship. He received his medical doctorate and PhD from Stanford University School of Medicine and has published academic articles in psychiatry and cell biology. As well as this, he's also an inventor and has a patent for microtubule lumen cast nanowire technology. I'm going to ask you about that in a little while. Uh, and in the world of cybersecurity, Dr. Louis also has a website, which is cybersecurity, that's P-S-Y-B-E-R, security.clinic, which focuses on the intersection between psychology and cybersecurity, providing information, resources, and services relating to protecting individuals' mental health and well-being in the digital age. He's regularly presented on the topic of cybersecurity and mental health at security conferences, on webinars and podcasts, and covers topics such as burnout, PTSD-like symptoms, and paranoia. Dr. Louis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, James, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation with everyone. That's great. And whereabouts are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from uh, Olympia, Washington, here on the uh, West Coast, uh, here in the U.S., so from across the pond. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate you joining us from so far away and so early in the morning for you. Normally, we start these conversations with where did your interest in technology begin? But I think this time we should probably start in with where did your interest in medicine and psychiatry first begin? Yeah, um, I think I first started thinking about psychiatry when I was working in the laboratory setting. I saw a lot of people working really hard, long hours at the bench, doing experiments. I've seen people with successes, things with that didn't work, failures. And I kind of wondered, what is the one thing that keeps everyone going despite these ups and downs of their career or their education and all the things in life? And it got me wondering that there's so much to this whole endeavor of creativity, innovation, and of creating things new and of staying well that goes far beyond just technology itself. It has a lot to do with one's feeling inside the mind. I got really curious about that. So I was thinking about various uh, specialties in medicine. I almost, I almost went into pediatrics, but decided to go for psychiatry. And. Was there always an interest in, in sciences? And you said, you know, you were sat in a lab doing this observation and, and having these thoughts about people. Was that always a natural path for you from a childhood that you were always interested in the sciences and technology? Um, I would say uh, I was always curious about uh, things in general. Um, I was always uh, uh, I was interested in nature and uh, how things are. I loved, I loved biology. I loved chemistry. Uh, I actually wanted to be a geologist when I was small. I loved rocks and, you know, curious about how things formed and how they looked. And so it was always kind of fascinating. And, uh, and certainly in these uh, modern times with, uh, with all the technology, I started to think about with everyone so connected with technology and it's everywhere and all the time, all, all, all in all ways and places, I started thinking about how does this interface with our lives? So start looking into that. 
And I know when, when I'm at the uh, odd social engagement that I introduce myself as a security researcher and talk about cybersecurity a little bit, and people either kind of glaze over or they ask me how to fix their printer or their Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, coming from your background, how people react when you tell them that you're a psychiatrist. Is there an immediate suspicion that you're evaluating them or are people really interested in the area? Absolutely. There's certainly the history in terms of psychiatry, both the origins of the field, its specialty, its its history, its reputation, and it's uh, its current state. I would say that a lot of people are curious about psychiatry. Sometimes I, I feel that they might see psychiatrists as maybe a little bit different from other kind of physicians and doctors. So, uh, but but I think deep down, everyone has a, a sort of like an appreciation. I, I think even more now that mental health is something that's important for everyone. And obviously, there's lots of areas when we talk about uh technology and the the pressures that people are under and the kind of the modern digital age what was it about cybersecurity in particular that made you think this is a really interesting area to to focus some research on yeah that's a that's a uh, interesting uh, question james i always kind of still think about this i think um uh, in my previous work, I used to work in a, in a large uh, hospital in downtown San Francisco in California, and uh, I worked at a locked psychiatric unit there. And uh, in that uh, mode of work, I, I had a chance to provide care to all different kinds of patients from all walks of life, including a lot of people uh, who were homeless and, uh, and who didn't have a safe place to stay. And it got me thinking about what does it truly mean to be well? I mean, they're safe in the hospital. We're taking care of them. We're helping them with their medications. But after they get discharged from the hospital, what happens to them? Where do they go if they need some help? What's their safety plan? What's it like to be out in the streets? Where do they go? And and I and I got I started to think about that being safe, being well, had so much to do with not just the things we do in each of our own specialties or each of our our modes of work, it actually takes a whole community of support, ranging from physicians to social workers to their families, their friends and services. Everything all comes together because once they're outside, they're kind of on their own and have support, but there's a lot of moving parts. So the idea of security and being well with oneself and being safe in these constantly changing environments and uncertainty got me thinking, what are the different components that have to do with feeling well, feeling trusted, feeling secure in a place that can be very overwhelming, very confusing, and with technology everywhere. And when you kind of look at some of the stresses around cybersecurity in general and the the mental health issues that that these things can cause, are are there unique things within that area, unique impacts that it has on people, or is it just a microcosm of a, a broader problem that people face with technology and changes and, and the evolving world? Yes, great question, James. When I think about that, I kind of compare people in the healthcare space, like providers and doctors and nurses, social workers. They're also patients also. Everyone is both uh, in this field, they're a provider and they're a patient. Everyone sees a doctor and, uh, and a dentist and, and so forth. Same for cybersecurity professionals. They are both at the front lines and defending and keeping everyone safe from cyber threats. But at the same time, they and their family and their and their friends are also consumers, users of these same technologies. Everyone has a device, or a lot of people, or most people do. And uh, and and so I see that through the lens of both. Right? It's a uh, uh, we are both receivers and providers of these services. And and so when I think about these uh, stresses, mental health impacts of people in this field. 
I, I again compared to people in the healthcare space, certainly a lot of burnout, a lot of a lot of uh, constant stress, uncertainty, limited time, limited resources, and that urge and that need to act on 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 things that that need help on and attention to when all the pieces may not be there. And uh, I think healthcare and cybersecurity, the, both of these fields share a lot in common. We work with uh, very difficult cases. We, we manage situations and information that we cannot just go out and just talk about because uh, we're here in the United States HIPAA, right? So privacy, security, confidentiality, mm-hmm. and, 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 and things of that nature. So that sort of limits people's ability to reach out for, for support. It's a very close kind of network. And uh, so, but at the same time, I think both both fields are moving forward and doing the best that they can and trying to find ways to do things better. And in the kind of area of, of cybersecurity, one of the observations I've always made over the years is how aggressive a lot of the terminology and languages. We often talk about cyber war and its attacks and it's us versus them. And there's a lot of things that are often associated with scenarios that you would normally only see described in, in armed conflict situations. Do, do those things have a particular impact on people that exacerbate some of the challenges that are out there, do you think? Absolutely does. Um, it happens in medicine all the time. We, uh, we in the medical field use uh, uh, technical language. We talk about pathogens. We talk about infections. We talk about targets. Actually, medicine borrows a lot of these terms from the military space as well, like in terms of like, uh, uh, we even talk about like uh, attacks, right? Like we talk about like attacks on the immune system, attacks on one's mental health, uh, things of that nature. So it certainly has that flavor and impact every time we communicate with patients. I, I sometimes uh, wonder if psychiatry even has more of that feel compared to other fields of medicine, just because of the nature of the things we talk about with our patients and the very deep mental issues that they might share with their providers that they may not have spoken to about with anyone else in the world, um, that they've been holding it inside themselves for all this time and they share with this particular provider, uh, wherever they're working with. So definitely language conveys meaning, conveys trust and ideas. So that is a very powerful mode of communication and also I would say it's a medicine. It has side effects, it has benefits, and the, the challenge is to learn where to use it and when not to use it and how to navigate between the two. And one of the things you mentioned there was, you know, there's the kind of the technical aspect and then there's the impact that it can have on people. So when we think about cyber attacks and Kind of the, the world I work in as a cybersecurity researcher, often thinking of attacks at a very technical level, thinking how many systems were impacted, how much data was breached, you know, what's the, the sensitivity of that data to the business, you know, what level of risk there is. But the impact of a, a cyber attack can also be measured by its psychological impact. And there's, there's multiple people involved in that. From your perspective, what, what makes an attack, a cyber attack, particularly psychologically impacted? And, and why are those aspects so important to consider? I think for cyber attacks, we talk about it, as you mentioned, James, in these technical terms, in terms of measurables, like financial loss, how many records were breached, 
how many social security numbers or kind of things got, got into the wrong hands or how many, how many gigabytes of data or terabytes or I don't know how much memory or, or how many, how, what was the scope of that? And they talk, talk about monetary value, how much has this impacted a business, the, the, the number value and, and measurables. Uh, the FBI comes out every year with that IC3 report that talks about the financial impact of cyber attacks and, and, and fraud and, and, and um, cyber crime. But what's missing is that other part that's not really evident and maybe not completely known in terms of the psychiatric impact, the mental health impact of something that happens. There's a, there's a close similarity between cyber crime and actual like physical type of crimes. There can be direct impacts on people's psyche and their mind and their, their trust actually um, towards the system, maybe trust in themselves in terms of their decisions and using this particular uh, technology. People might second guess, was it me? Was it something that I did? There's tremendous guilt. There can be anxiety, certainly depression, PTSD-like symptoms as well. Things of having nightmares or flashbacks about something, always worried about being uh, hypervigilant about things happening like this again. A lot of people might describe uh, after a cyber attack that they wonder whether or not uh, they should be using the same ways that they've been doing things online. You know, they're more cautious when they uh, do online purchases or when when information is being asked about them online. You know, it's, it has that, that repercussion. And, and I sometimes wonder, you know, how long does this last? Even after the breach has been uh, secured and it's been stabilized, uh, the business goes on as usual, so to say. But what about the people that were protecting the, 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 the victims? What about the victims themselves? How does that uh, how does that affect them long term? That's a really big question that I think a lot of people are are still trying to figure out. One of the things I'm curious to get your opinion on is the impact in terms of how that differs from the physical world. So, if I am robbed on the street or if my house gets broken into, I feel like I have a certain level of control there. I can put better locks on my door. I can do more things around my personal safety. With cyber attacks, the impact that it has on people, I'm assuming they, they must often just feel like it's completely out of their control. They think, you know, I used I used the password, long passwords like they told me. I did the, maybe I did the multi-factor authentication, but you have very little control over your digital security. What, what psychological impacts do you think that has on people? Yeah, James, that's a great question. Uh, in thinking about that, I sometimes think to uh, patient uh, uh, clinical cases where the general question is, when is this crisis over? When is the acute period finished and into the recovery phase? How long does the recovery phase start? Does it ever start or does it ever end? What is that dynamic like? In a physical attack, oftentimes more information is known, uh, or it's not always the case, but it seems uh, more clear sometimes in terms of what happened and the scenario and who might be involved. And and it may not be known like who did it, uh, but at least there's some sort of physical evidence or something that that occurred. In in cyber attacks, oftentimes it's that ambiguity and uncertainty and unknown that makes it particularly challenging. Even though things have been settled and and made safe again and, and recovered, there's always the idea of that thing in the back of the mind, and it's not so different from various psychiatric illnesses and, and conditions, where people always wonder, will this happen again? Is it truly gone? 
are we just keeping the 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 cover on these issues and they're they're sort of boiling underneath or do i somehow worry about them popping up again it's the idea of an unresolved issue that eats away at one's mind uh leading to things like anxiety uncertainty and continued perpetual stress it's the idea of something acute becoming perpetually chronic yeah it does yeah, that's really interesting because if I think back to occasions where I've had phone calls from friends or relatives who've been hit by a cybersecurity breach and they're often very upset and they want to know what did they do wrong? What could they have done differently? How could they have better protected themselves? How did they stop themselves from happening in these things happening in the, in the future? And often there's no good answer for them because it was some technology that was outside of their sphere of control, outside of their knowledge. And, you know, we see the, the growing numbers of, of, breaches that everyone has been breached in some way or another and the growing scale of them and the fact that you might have been breached a year ago and the company might not have told you so from kind of that that perspective how how should companies think about making sure that their consumers their customers are best informed and mentally protected when it comes to these kind of incidents again i think there's a direct parallels to medicine Uh, oftentimes uh psychiatric conditions or any condition in in various fields of medicines, they are in large part in the hands of their providers. I mean, there's a lot of information out there and there's always different places to get expertise and opinions, Uh, but essentially patients come to doctors for their guidance and for their their expertise and for their compassion and and for their way forward. It, it, It matters a lot in terms of trust. It's something that takes a tremendously long time to build and can be instantly destroyed and and, and it can be very difficult to recover. So I think in terms of uh, working with uh, clients, organizations in the cybersecurity field, working with clients or anyone in the healthcare space, working with patients, it always, it may sound simple, but it comes down to this. How would one like to be treated if we were in that kind of situation? What would we like? Would we want to know and how much information would we like to receive at what pace and what type and of what nature and with whom? Give the patient or the client those options. Let them know what the scenario is, the situations, and let them know to the best that you can what you're thinking. So, for example, if I'm working with a patient and we're looking at this uh, uh, psychiatric condition, I would say, well, this is what I'm kind of seeing and, and this is what I think it is. And, and, and I tell them the options and I give them not just a yes or no, but I say that this is good for these reasons and this is not so good for these reasons. And this is why I think that balance is like this at this moment. That balance could change at any time. And we want to constantly have a two-way conversation with this person or this client or this organization in terms of the thinking, how things evolve so that they are involved in the whole process of making a decision. I compare it to informed consent. Oftentimes when we uh, download a software, there's like a what's an end user licensing agreement or something. It's like very long. Uh, someone told me that, I read a book somewhere that said that if we were to read all the things, it would take us like a, uh, I don't know, days on end to read every, all the legal documents <laughs> regarding some privacy or, or usage of some software or application or platform. Uh, same, for, same for medical procedures. There's a, there's a long list of things that, that patients should know, and they say, I agree to this procedure, and then they sign. I would say that most people may not have even read that. They just say, well, I'm here to get care. I trust you. I'm just going to sign off on it. And, and we should treat that as not just a single point moment in time, 
but actually we should treat it as a granting of one's permission from a person who needs help and service that it is not a carte blanche thing where we we, we just say uh, you do anything. It actually is an invitation, just the first step to continue that ongoing conversation, a two-way street all the way. And we've kept touching on the, the intersection between cybersecurity, cyber breaches, and, and healthcare, obviously the area that, that you're in. One of the most extreme examples of, of that breach of trust on both sides would be something like the, the Vestamo um, attack in Finland, where people's um, medical records, specifically therapy sessions, discussions with uh, medical professionals around some very intimate details in their, their personal lives were, were breached um, and, and put online as well. So could you maybe talk, I know you've, you've talked about this in the past, but could you maybe talk about the, the impact of that and, and how people can start to process and cope with these things and, and what the, the, you know, what changes need to be put in place to help protect against these things. Yes. Certainly in the ranking of, of information and uh, of things uh, uh, related to er people's everyday lives, financial information, uh, privacy information, various things. I kind of feel that, and a lot of people do see it this way too, that health information is sometimes the closest to a person in terms of their privacy, things that they want to really keep close to them, that they want to really protect because it fundamentally has to do with themselves as people. They are just one person. They, it's not that they could always change. They can't change themselves. They are themselves. They are human beings. So medical information has that layer uh, to it. Because of the stigmatization of mental health in, in our current society, it's gotten a lot better by far, but we are not nearly where we should be in terms of parity with physical uh, conditions and physical health. Um, there's the added layer of a psychiatric layer of information in addition to medical. Even though psychiatry is a field of medicine, people kind of see it differently. It's treated in the form of additional consents that might need to be signed for certain additional information to be released in addition to typical or other parts of medicine. It's the idea that people's records in terms of therapy notes or sessions or things that they talk about, it has that feeling that there is something very close to them inside their minds and in their hearts and what they talk about. And that if there is a breach of that trust, whether it's by a cyber attack or, or, or someone being careless in terms of handling information, or whether it's by, by some random act or, or just loss in general, um, that has a tremendous impact because it drills down to these various layers that we just talked about. It, it goes to the health layer, the psychiatric layer, the trust layer, and the whole a feeling of being a person and uh, with, the, with the patient sharing one's uh, uh, deep stories within themselves. So I think that cyber attacks on mental health information and the, the services has that additional component of, of the unknown and of the, uh, of, of the deepness of that and the idea of like, who else is out there? Who else knows about this? And as a practitioner yourself, you know, if you're in that situation, do you think those kind of trust relationships are recoverable, even though it wasn't your fault that the information was breached? If the information that you held has, has been put out there in the world, do you think that's a situation that you can work with a patient to recover from and, and rebuild that trust? Or do you think you kind of have to have a fresh start for the patient there? It's definitely going to be an impact uh, regardless. There, there's certainly going to be an impact. Uh, the difference between a person wanting to 
stay with a provider if something like that happens versus something that's, that uh, makes them think, well, let's go somewhere else. Oftentimes it has to do with the history that led up to that current situation, the relationship, the trust. Although certainly when something like that happens, there's deep drop in trust. But if there has been a reserve and a, 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 an understanding and a relationship going forward into that, that, that incident and, of course, how it was handled and, and what is done about it and steps forward for the future, that can also oftentimes be some element to help uh, a patient feel a little bit more comfortable if something like that were to happen. It's not unlike a medication, right? We talk about side effects, benefits and the side effects. Certain treatments may not be good for the human body just because of the nature of that chemical or that medicine or that treatment. But if a person decides that the balance of the big picture of things, that this procedure, this medication was good for that person, and despite the side effects and the negatives, that they had a better quality of life because of it, and they would like to continue with it, it happens all the time, breach or no breach, daily business or not daily business. It, it, has, that, it has that calculus in one's mind in terms of that thinking. So I think being able to communicate well, to honestly and sincerely have the client or the patient's interest in mind and to leave everything else behind, even though it is important, you just gotta leave everything else behind because the wellness of the person is the primary priority. If, you've, if you could portray that and, and keep that central to everything that we do, you could always feel certain that uh, you're doing your best and the patient will know that as well. I think that's a, a lovely way to to put it, and I, you know the idea of it being like the medicine that it, it can have side effects. It can, in some cases, shorten people's lives, but actually the quality of life is is important there. And actually, they're looking at the picture holistically and seeing what the overall benefits are versus the, you know what the trade offs are there. One of the the other areas that you've researched, as well as the, the cybersecurity side of things, is uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. So. What attracted you to that area of research and what did you find out there that interested you? Yeah, that was during an earlier time during my training. I was doing um, a psychiatry training in Hawaii. And, uh, and I was, as I was thinking about mental health and providing psychiatric care for, for, for patients, I had this interest in that idea of innovation. It goes back to that time in the lab, people being creative people being uh, uh, doing experiments in the laboratory, maybe having entrepreneurial aspirations to maybe uh, develop this, a certain technology into something else. Uh, the idea of, of business and startups. Um, I, I, I thought that was a really fascinating field because certainly in the startup field and venture capital, tremendous ups and downs. Uh, we only, oftentimes we hear about the success stories and, 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 the, and, the, and the people and the companies that become uh, news, uh, news that we see in, in everyday life. But uh, behind that story of every success, there is a tremendous pathway towards that, including ups and downs. And I was fascinated in what allows a person to become resilient, to stay with the pathway, to keep that in focus and to keep going to, uh, to achieve. Uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. And, uh, and that led me down that pathway. And uh, I certainly uh, had a chance to speak with uh, entrepreneurs, people in that venture space and uh, sharing stories. They shared a lot of things uh, in terms of things that they felt, uh, certainly a lot of stress, burnout and uh, mental health things. This, this sort of a theme that comes through in your research there of people who are able, whether it's entrepreneurs who are able to, you know, 
face losses and keep going or cybersecurity professionals who, you know, dealing with a never ending set of, of challenges there from a security protection perspective or medical professionals who, you know, you have a constant stream of patients. What is it that really interests you about that, that kind of human resiliency? Uh, and what, what's the motivation there, do you think? Yeah. When people ask me, why did you choose psychiatry? I like to tell them this. We're like surgeons, except our, our tools are invisible and we do it anyway. So it's portable. It's, it's, it's more than mobile. It's like super mobile, right? Because it's in one's mind. You can have a session in any kind of setting if the, the environment is good and it's uh, we, and we're in a trusted, right? A trust. Actually, trust. Trust is the central uh, ingredient uh, that you can deploy your tool anywhere there is trust. It's a, it's a prerequisite. Absolute prerequisite. You need that trust. And once you got that trust, you can deliver your 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 care and your services. And we can do that quote invisibly, right? Like we don't have all the tools and scalpels and scissors and things like that or forceps. Uh, but we do that. And I, that was fascinating for me. And uh, and that idea that there is so much potential that might be unlocked from a person by allowing that person to see a different way of life or a different way of thinking about certain things that they discovered it from within themselves that they had not known about before. And you allowed them to see that for themselves and guided them to that place. Uh, it's not that we uh, tell them what to do. We, uh, we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. But what we can do is allow a person to clear away the, the obstacles so that they can see what they truly want to do. Uh, that's fascinating. And obviously, you know, looking at your uh, background and the, the research we've done for this podcast, you know, the, the topics you're researching, you seem to be deeply involved in because you're not only researching entrepreneurs, but you're also an inventor of the microtubule lumen cast nanowire technology and all these other things. Maybe, in fact, maybe you could just briefly explain what uh, microtubule lumen cast nanowire technology is because it sounds very interesting. Yeah. Well, this is before, uh, before I decided what uh, field to go into or, or what, what medicine, what medical field. I, I did uh, uh, research in, in a lab uh, during grad school that talked about cell biology, the cellular architecture of a cell. You might imagine a cell being like a house where it has all the butts, uh, the struts and streams and beams and things like that, that, that keep the house together. But instead of the house being a static, solid structure, the cell is dynamic. It is constantly moving. You might have seen like an amoeba, right? It's got the legs kind of moving out in front and the back is kind of retracting. It's constantly sensing. It doesn't know exactly where it wants to go, but it's constantly exploring. It's sending out those, those sensors. We wanted to look at those, what happens internally, those structures that, that, that allow that amoeba or let's say a cell to kind of uh, send out those structures. So we worked on something called a microtubule. Micro, very small, tubule, a tiny tube. These are, uh, these are uh, literally molecular machines. They are proteins that have a structure, a beautiful structure that has like a, a cylinder. So we studied these to see how they are important in cell motility, how a cell becomes motile, how it moves around, and what happens to these, to these microtubular structures. They actually grow and shrink and are very dynamic. And uh, so I used this idea and I was kind of thinking about it one day. It wasn't the purpose of our lab, but I was kind of thinking about it one time. What happens if we stuff some stuff into this hollow tube? I mean, it wasn't something that nature 
had it that way. I mean, we didn't know uh, what was going on inside this tube. Everything happens on the outside, including various kind of processes and other proteins and the cell that attached to it. So I decided to uh, stuff some metal in there, <laughs> put some silver in there, and allow this microtubule to kind of shape this piece of metal because this tube has this sort of like a very small uh, uniform or close to uniform. I mean, there's some uh, variability to it, but the idea of using a protein to shape metal so that we could make it for uh, possibly some engineering purposes. That was my initial idea. So hence, microtubule lumen. So inside the lumen, inside the hole, casting of metallic material. Fantastic. I think, I think what's really coming across is, as with many of the people we have on this podcast, you have that hacker mindset of looking for interesting problems to solve. And, you know, a lot of the guests we have on here are looking for ways to make systems more resilient and work out how they can learn from attacks. And you're doing this with in the world of psychiatry and, and cell biology and all these other different areas uh, rather than kind of coding things. So it's it's really interesting to see that hacker mentality being applied. And I can see why you're enjoying the crossover with the worlds of cybersecurity and entrepreneurship there. Um, speaking of of that kind of entrepreneurship, you do set up a website, uh, cybersecurity, P-S-Y-B-E-R security. Um, Tell us a little bit about how that came about and why you wanted to to get that going and get the information out into the world. Yeah, so uh, I was kind of thinking about like uh, the, the the junction between cybersecurity with a, a CYBER and psychiatry. Psychiatry is the field that I was uh, going into and studying. And I was as I was thinking about these ideas of working with patients and looking to see how they use technology, how it has impacted their lives, how the security of their technology and their devices directly translates to their wellness and, and the security of people, I started thinking about this. What would happen if we combined the two and made it cyber security with a PSY, cyber, PSY, PER security? So I set up this website, maybe just as a, a starter kind of website. It's uh, still in the very early stage. I'm not a, I'm not a professional at all in this kind of field. I was just kind of posting things that, that I've been working on. But it's a general place that people can go to as an educational resource to learn about topics uh, related to mental health and wellness in the cybersecurity field. And this junction of psychiatry and cybersecurity means cybersecurity. So uh, the, the purpose and the, the feeling and the, and the ethos behind it is that I want everyone to feel empowered to find the information, learn about the information and make it theirs. Uh, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to talk about mental health, cybersecurity, or to contribute to a call for papers or to present at a conference. Everyone already has the default permission to say yes to themselves to go out and do that because it's in their DNA. You know, uh, cybersecurity uh, professionals are experts in cybersecurity and other parts of uh, technology. Use that same mindset for them for their own self. Apply the security principles to their own mental health. They've already got all the parts. You just need to learn uh, uh, and have themselves get that permission to move forward with it. So it has that sort of feeling that well, we want everyone to get good information, make it open, allow people to uh, have the tools to take care of themselves. That's fantastic. And we'll obviously, we'll put the link to the website in the description for the podcast so people can check it out themselves. But there's some really nice resources on there, as well as actually uh, the RSA website. I, I, you know, you've presented there, I think, over the course of three years. And there's about six different presentations, blogs, webinars, videos that you've produced for them. How did you come to be involved in, in RSA and presenting at, at those events? Yeah, this is kind of interesting. During, uh, during my early times of uh, psychiatry training, I was actually Googling one time. I was thinking about security because I was thinking about like, you know, psychiatric security in the sense of 
feeling secure for their mental health in, in this mental space in the world of technology. So I, I actually Googled and then I was wondering, you know, what are certain events that, that people speak at, at these kind of things? And I was in Hawaii at that time. So, you know, really far away from everything else and on, on an island. So I was saying, how can I connect and learn about these things? And RSA came out and uh, I'm originally from San Francisco. I grew up there. I went to local schools right there in the city. And RSA conference, lo and behold, was there every year. I was like, what's RSA? I didn't even know what R, S, and A were and, uh, or this conference. So I decided to uh, one time uh, uh, send a, a, a proposal for a talk. And they were very kind. They were the first. Uh, a conference that uh, gave me the opportunity to speak about mental health and burnout in the cybersecurity field. And uh, I've since uh, uh, stayed in touch with people that I've met in the field. So um, so uh, really, really happy about that. It's been a while since my last uh, RSA conference, but I hope to uh, rejoin again sometime in the future. That's great. And I know you've gone on to do many other conferences and things. And the, the, like I said, the content is still up there if people want to go and have a look, because I think it's really worth having a watch because uh, a lot of the things interesting that you're, you're talking about, unlike a lot of security topics, which can be very transient, they're sort of very timeless in the fact that, you know, people have evolved to a certain point. Our, our mental states and things don't change year on year that there's that the same things apply and there might be more research in the area, but there's some very timeless concepts that people should be aware of when it comes to, like you say, burnout and stress and, and, and how to handle those things. One, one of the topics we've been talking about is the Im psychological impact that cyber attacks and technology has on people. But if we flip that around a little bit and we talk about people who are suffering from psychological mental health challenges, does that make them more susceptible to cybersecurity risks? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, James. And it kind of depends on each person. Uh, across the various kind of uh, clinical experiences that I've seen, I would say that there are definitely cases along the whole spectrum where I initially thought that something might be worrisome for a patient or something that might be favorable, seen favorably by a patient, and it turns out to be a complete different view because of that person's either uh, current state of being at baseline or their current mental health stressor or the acute crisis that alters or changes the way they usually think about things. And it definitely is specific for each one. So we in medicine, we have this thing called the differential diagnosis. This is essentially your ranking of all your best guesses of what might be going on. So oftentimes if someone comes, let's say, with a pneumonia or, or, or a cough, you know, the, the differential diagnosis is very broad. It can be caused by many, many things. In psychiatry, it's the same thing. A person feels anxious or, or not trusting towards a technology. What does that mean? Did it have something to do with something in real life? Or was it something that happened online? Or was it a security issue? Like, what is one's usage and relationship with technology? Something like you would see uh, or ask about a, a patient during a session about uh, who are important people in their life? Or what, what, what has been the most meaningful for you? Add that to technology, put that as, a, as an entity so that we understand and flesh out that relationship. So I kind of keep it with an open view, seeing that, you know, what is, what is one's approach towards technology? What has happened? What has not happened? What is known? What is not known? What are fears? And kind of build that in the list of things. I actually, this may sound like a very strange idea, but I actually always put in the back of my mind, maybe because I'm thinking cyber all the time, could this be something due in part to something that happened via technology. It might not be a huge component. 
It might not even be any component at all. But if we never talk about it, just like mental health, we would never know that it existed. We would never have that conversation. So I'm trying to uh, build that in, within the medical community to say that always look out for the role of cyber attacks, cyber threats in terms of what might be going on so that we don't miss out on anything. And one of the things that I find myself talking about a lot these days is the kind of shift in cyber attacks that we used to have a lot of technical exploits and people be targeting servers and mainframes and firewalls and all this this kind of thing. But increasingly, as systems have got more secure and we've got better at patching and updating and, and, and preventing things and detecting attacks, the attackers are increasingly turning to identities and the, the people you know, to take their accounts and take control of their identity. So other examples of you know, psychological components, uh, you know, the way people will perceive things and use psychological tricks from the attacker's perspective to deceive people and manipulate them in, in ways uh, that you've seen examples of. Yes, absolutely. It's the world of social engineering. And I believe that you've had several guests in that field of pen testing uh, who have been doing uh, very uh, fascinating work, great work in the field of uh, testing uh, for security and ethical hackers type of uh, methods and to test out things in terms of their, 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 their security and their resiliency. And all of these elements, and I'm just following along like what people do in the cybersecurity field to help protect themselves and to help uh, test out systems, it's that whole idea of the human element. It's the social engineering, and uh, 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 I think Professor Robert Cialdini's laws of persuasion, like reciprocity, uh, social proof. Uh, that happens all the time in everyday life that we are constantly swayed and being persuaded and being asked for things under time pressure of, of things that, that are asked by other people. It happens in medicine as well. Uh, the idea of persuasion and of uh, allowing one's mind to think of certain things or to get guided in certain ways. And it's not just medicine. It's everyday life in terms of making decisions. Every time we make a decision, it's actually being influenced by multiple, multiple things that happen. So if that process has a component to a person or a thing that might not have our best interest in mind, could that component, whether it's 1% or 2% or maybe 50% or more, could that have some kind of a sway in what we do every day in life? Oftentimes in the healthcare space, um, uh, we talked about earlier in the discussion about providers also being consumers and possibly victims as well. That happens in the mental health space. Uh, oftentimes, people in the mental health field and, and medicine in general, I like to think that we have empathy. We like to help people. If there are certain doubts, um, sometimes people like to go the extra mile to do more to help out a patient case because they have their, their interest in the patient's best interest in mind. And oftentimes, in that process, it's the duality that a person with great intentions and wanting to do outstanding patient care might be the same person that might inadvertently lead to a process that's not secure and might lead to a potential breach. Now, it's the whole idea of, of, of influencing and, and doing things for people and of wanting to help out that makes a person both very kind, but at the same time can be very vulnerable. And it brings the fact that we need people to help us out. We are not alone. We need other people to look out for us. We need technologies to look out for us. We need ways and methods and routines and cultures that allow us to be safe, 
to, to look out for one another and to not be afraid to take a pause. I like to always say an empathic pause, take a break. Got a suspicious email. Someone got a, got a kind of strange phone call coming in. Someone asking you to do something. Take a little pause and say, hey, what is this? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the company? What does this mean for society? What does this mean for this person that's asking? Like just kind of take slow things down and think things through and then process it. And, and it's something like that. So um, it's very difficult. It's increasingly shifting towards the human element as things become more secure. They're looking at ways in which the human mind might be uh, uh, manipulated. Hence, I was thinking the mental health attack surface and psychiatric engineering, an offshoot of social engineering that uses precision medicine in a anti-Hippocratic oath type of way towards doing something bad in terms of bad actors. And you obviously given some advice there around, you know, just taking that pause and making sure that you've got the support around you. When people are thinking about cybersecurity at their company and, you know, the environment they live in, what things would you advise they do culturally to make it a more supportive environment to help with people's mental health, but also to help protect themselves against these cyber attacks that play on time pressures and, and people being under pressure to, to succeed? I always think back to that one example when I was a medical student. I was just one of the medical students rotating through a, a medical rotation at the hospital. Uh, it was just a, a, like a four-week uh, rotation. We met our team on the first day, orientation, the attending physician, head doctor, gathered up the team, and he said, we're all in here together. We're all here to learn. Um, never feel afraid if, you're, if, you're, if your plate was too full. We got too many things going on. You need assistance with the patient. We are all here to take care of our patients. If any team member, whether it's medicine, medical students, a resident, an intern, or anyone in that team, or maybe even the attending physician himself, he would ask for help. He said that right there at the beginning. And he said that don't feel that you're going to be negatively evaluated or or that you know, because everyone wants a good evaluation. You know, they they want a good recommendation, a letter, a good reference. And so everyone's always almost uh, being you know really careful about uh, not, not disturbing things and doing a good job. But he said that we're a team. Our patients come first. We are going to just support each other. And don't be afraid to ask for help. He said that right at day one. So because of that, he removed the onus of this responsibility, of this burden of thinking about, oh, should I ask for help? Or would it be okay to ask for help on this uh, this kind of case because uh, you know their, their load was too full? He kind of removed that. And everyone had a great time. We learned. It got busy. It certainly got busy. And we certainly asked for help in many different ways. There were a lot of things we still didn't know and, and unknowns as is any kind of medicine. But he kind of changed that culture. And I... Well, I was kind of thinking about that, and I was like, "Wow, that was that was pretty brave of him to say that." And it took a lot of courage and 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 uh, leadership to say that, and to not just say it, but he carried it through throughout those four weeks, at least uh, during the time when I was there. And I'm I'm certainly 110% sure that he did that even after uh, for other students and other residents as well. So I thought that was awesome. Uh, I was wondering, could this be deployed in the same sort of way to? larger organizations or to each person we work with, start small. You know, if you're working with a client, single person, if we're working with a single patient, start there, you know, say, hey, we're in a safe place. Establish the safety zone. Yeah, it's something that, that in kind of that general topic comes up in 
with cybersecurity professionals quite a lot of the time because historically there's often been the culture of security or IT being the department who say no, the department who shame people for clicking the wrong link or doing the wrong thing. And actually it needs to be a lot more of a supportive environment of if I think I've done something wrong, I need to be able to tell someone without consequence. And it's it's the same thing that, you know, the airline industry is like usually the great example of that, that you can report something kind of no fault within a certain time period. Whereas in other industries, people will cover things up and make them worse and, and the pressures mount and, and then suddenly things, the dam bursts and everything goes wrong. So I think that's, that's a wonderful advice. And it's great that, you know, you had that experience uh, during your, your training as well. If uh, someone's in the scenario where, you know, they're working in cybersecurity, you know, we've talked about there's high burnout rates, there's high stress rates. If someone is particularly worried about their mental health or maybe the mental health of a colleague, what what should their first steps be to, to do something about that? Yeah, that's a great question, James. It's really important. And it's the idea that one should always be on constant awareness for themselves and to give themselves permission to get that help if they need to. For example, they oftentimes will see and feel that something doesn't feel right. Ask themselves, take a pause, go back to the pause, take a break, step outside and say, does this feel right to me or is this something different? Is this typical stress of the work or is there something different and unique about this time that makes me feel a little bit different? It might even be the answer of, I actually, I don't know, but I know enough that I actually took this brief moment of time to stop and think about it. That very act of noticing and acting should allow one person to have that permission and give themselves a pat on the back for doing a good job because that takes, that's the first step. Take that break and say, hey, I need to take a pause. Even if it's just a 30 second, they took that pause, they noticed, they did something about it and they thought about it. That's what they should be doing constantly. And of course, if they find something's not right, ask for help. Go to a trusted network. We always talk about that trust again. So it's that trust of people that they would go to. For example, when we work with patients, we always work with a safety plan, a mental health safety plan. It actually talks about things like, you know, in the case of, of things going uh, not so good, what are some of the warning signs? What are things that I can notice that, that allow me to say, hey, something's not going right? And then it kind of moves down the list, like in terms of, okay, well, what are certain things that you could do for yourself to kind of make yourself feel a little bit more relaxed and things like that? If that doesn't work, kind of scale up, right? Okay, who can we ask? Trust the network. Doesn't have to be a whole lot of people. Close friend, close family member, a mentor, someone you feel comfortable talking about these things about. And then later on, kind of goes to a wider scope. I always recommend that uh, regardless of the level along anywhere along the spectrum, even if people feel it's not quote serious or nothing uh, much to make any news about, I always say, always let their provider know. Their doctors, they don't have to be psychiatrists. They could be general practitioners, uh, you know, family practice, uh, primary care, anyone, anyone who provides care and who looks out for the well-being, let them know. Say, hey, you know, I know this might not have been anything. I stepped out for just 30 seconds and I was back to normal. But I just want to let you know that I thought about that and, and, and keep that conversation. Remember, it's that dynamic conversation. Even though patients might not have appointments, of course, they don't have it all the time. They might be even uh, kind of spaced out in terms of availability and things like that. But the idea that that bond is still there to have that communication and that place to ask for help if they need it. I think that's the main important thing. And of course, emergency line, if things are not feeling uh, safe, if there's an emergency, not feeling uh, uh, safe for themselves or for other people, call their local emergency services here in the United States, of course, 911, in the UK, uh, other numbers, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that that's uh, wonderful advice to give to people there. And I think, you know, there's a there's an interesting parallel with a lot of the processes that people in cybersecurity be familiar with. You know, if a certain thing happens that is untoward or suspicious, you might have an instant response plan. You might start to bring things in place. You might need to start communicating with various people. And it's important to think about that from your own mental health perspective as well, that you need a way of responding to those incidents and don't wait until it's happening to think about how you might handle this. Take that pause, engage with those people, follow those processes and uh, think about those things up front because, you know, in, in a world where you're reacting to cyber threats and cyber attacks, you don't know when that next psychological pressure and trigger is going to be. So I think preparedness uh, is certainly something that we can, we can think about a little bit more in this industry. Absolutely. And it's the idea of trust, that back and forth of building that trust over time, even if something turns out to be not anything or people might be afraid of making a false alarm, there's actually never a false alarm. Every time we report something and that we are taking a conscious effort to take care of ourselves, take that step to look out for each other and, and look out for ourselves, we are actually training our mind daily practicing daily so that this feels natural for us it does not feel unusual to bring up something it just says oh yeah it's just like waking up and uh you know uh getting ready for work or, or school or brush your teeth at night or in the morning throughout the day it's like that it's a daily routine second nature nothing unusual it's, it's standard and more importantly in the future and when we get to a good culture it will be expected as something that's 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 normal and and of every of everyone in their daily lives and that's a nice nice thought to end on, actually, that uh, where do you think we should be uh, in, say, 10 years' time in terms of mental health and uh, kind of the stresses that we're dealing with in our relationship with technology? Where would you like to see us be in, in the next 10 years? Yes, yes. Certainly a lot of rapidly developing technologies and artificial intelligence, AI, and and various uh, things in technology and evolving uh, social, political, uh, geographic kind of like a situations as well all throughout the world. And those things would always continue to be, and we look back at history, right? Um, there's always going to be the role of people and technology that, that changes over time. But deep down, people will always be people. No matter how much technology we have, no matter what those capabilities are, they can be used for good or they can be used for bad. And uh, and the central part of everything is that they are actually being used by people and their minds and their intentions and what they like to achieve with whatever they're doing. So as long as we have that element of trust, that's going to be always a central theme. It has been a theme for centuries, eons of time, maybe even to the early cave people kind of days, right? It's the idea of trust. That will always be there. It cannot be replaced. It cannot be engineered. And it cannot be replaced by anything else in the world. And uh, and having that trust and having that love for people and having that confidence to do the right thing with constant communication with people in in, in, a, in a sincere and honest and, 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 and honest way with integrity. And I, I would hope, you know, trust and the concepts around trust would be something that from a you know technical perspective, all, all our audience should be very familiar with. And I think it's really interesting to think about that in the the more, you know, traditional human sense of the word rather than, you know, machine to machine trust and, you know, certificates and all these kind of things that we talk about and actually thinking about what that means, what trust means for us as, as people. So that's a, a lovely way to think about how we progress in the future. 
that's all we have time for today on Adventures of Alice and Bob. A big thanks to our guest, Dr. Ryan Louis, for sharing his journey, his perspectives on cybersecurity, entrepreneurship, and mental health. And I hope, like me, listeners have really taken away something to think about and act upon in their own day-to-day lives. Links to Dr. Louis's website that is mentioned and articles will be included in the description of this podcast. But as we mentioned earlier, if you or someone you know is seriously struggling with mental health, make sure you touch base with a care provider, talk to someone about it, and take that pause to stop and think. We're all in this together. Thanks, as always, to super producer Ben and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been Adventures of Alice and Bob. 